Tonight, we are starting a brand new series of studies on the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph is one of my favorite Bible characters. Uh, probably my favorite is King David, very fascinating man, but probably right up there, maybe second uh, in line is the, the person of Joseph. And by Joseph, we're not talking about New Testament, we're talking about Joseph, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament. And so we're going to start that tonight, and I'll be honest with you, I have a pretty ambitious uh, schedule for this evening uh, because we're going to be looking at a lot of material. So I'm going to I'm going to try to teach fast, and you need to listen fast. Okay, so uh, so buckle your seatbelt, and we'll get started. But as we talk about the life of Joseph, one of the things that we know to be true is that complex lives have complex backgrounds, and and Joseph's life is no exception. So. Before we even begin to think about the detail of Joseph's story, uh, we need to step back and set it in the context of the rest of the book of Genesis in order to give ourselves a depth of understanding. Excuse me. Since the narrative of Joseph's, Joseph's lives comes at the end of Genesis, then the truth is that background is considerable. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at from Genesis chapter 1, all the way up through Jacob. And so we got a lot to cover. As is the custom in that part of the world, Joseph would have grown up on a diet of stories of, of the, all of the great heroes of, of Israel's history. And he would have been steeped, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he would have been steeped in the fascinating narratives of his father Jacob and his grandfather Isaac. And, he, and, and his great-grandfather Abram. A lot, a lot of people don't understand, they don't realize Joseph was the great-grandfather of Abraham. He's very closely uh, related to him time-wise. And so, you know, he heard all of these stories. This is their culture. They grew up passing these stories down verbally. And so he, he heard all the stories of, of his great-grandfather and great-grandmother, Abraham and Sarah and, Sarah, and what had happened and how his grandfather was born. And and then how his father came about. And, and so there's a lot there. And, and not only that, he would have been acquainted not only with that uh, family history, but he would have been acquainted with the prehistory right back to the beginning. You see, because the, the you know, uh, Moses, the Genesis is attributed to Moses. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, we know that the story of the creation account would have been passed down from generation to generation verbally long before it was ever written down. So he would know all of that stuff right back to the beginning. In other words, he would have known a good deal of the plot line, the whole plot line of Genesis. So it is there that we must begin for, for we need to know some of what Joseph knew, because if we don't understand this, then we'll never understand how he became the man he became. That's why this is so important tonight. Now, Genesis is more than just a narrative. It's more than just a story that you read through. <clears throat> it's what's called a meta-narrative, uh, giving us a grand framework for our understanding of the universe and, and of life. Now, what is, you hear a word, that's a big word. What is a meta-narrative? A meta-narrative, also some people refer to it as a grand narrative. It's an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. It's you can think of it as the big story behind <clears throat> behind all of the other stories. It's, it's a story that explains the meaning behind the stories of Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. It's the overarching story that helps us understand even our place in God's plan to realize that the story of my life is really part of a bigger story of what God's accomplishing throughout history and in creation. So in order to grab, grasp its story, because Genesis, after all, is a large book, it's helpful to have some idea of its literary shape, so to speak. And it turns out that the author uses a simple literary device in order to structure his material. <clears throat> the, he uses the repetition at intervals of the phrase, these are the generations of. And he uses that to introduce a new section. Several of the six main sections have more than one instance of that repeated phrase in order to, to delineate subsections under that. But you have the first part of the book, which contains three of those sections, that, that, and they record the creation of human beings in the image of God. 
And then the second part of the book consists of three sections that cover the lives of the patriarchs. So the, the, and then when you get to the second half, the part of the patriarchs, the first section ends with the death of Abraham. The second section ends with the death of Isaac. And the third section ends with the deaths of Jacob and Joseph. Because interestingly enough, their deaths are, deaths are announced at the same time, even though the father and son, and they didn't die at the same time. Above all, Genesis tells us about the God in whom Joseph believed, the God he learned to trust. So let's go back, and we're going to look at each one of these, and I'm, not going to take, I'm trying to go quickly on some of these earlier parts, but they are important to help us understand Joseph's mindset, how he got to become the man, how he got to the place to be the man that he became. So section one is creation, Genesis chapter 1, 1 through verse 23, or excuse me, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, I should say. The, the, the book begins with the origin of the universe in the mind and the creative energy of God. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the, so the very first majestic sentence of, uh, uh, of this book, give, it undergirds and it gives meaning to the developing saga that follows, and it, and it asserts that the universe we inhabit is a creation, that the world did not generate itself. It did not spring into being spontaneously from nothing, that God caused it to be. And, and, and the briefest of brief histories of time opens with an elegant and, and, and fast-flowing account of the creation of the universe and of life and all of its more, more marvelous variety. The, the creation and organization of the cosmos proceeds in a series of steps, <clears throat> each of which is initiated by God speaking. And you see it over and over again in that first part where it says, and God said, and something happened. And the final step in that creation process that climaxes the sequence is God's creation of human beings in his own image. See, the, although the heavens reflect the glory of God, human beings are made in God's image. Only humans are. Humanity is unique among all of creation. And, and, and now just what being made in the image of God means and how special human beings are is actually gradually revealed as an integral part of the biblical storyline, and you learn that all throughout the entire Bible. However, several very important aspects of that image are communicated right here in the very early chapters of Genesis. The first is that after the sequence of repetitions of the phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, suddenly in verse 28, we read something that's strikingly different. Because in verse 28, he says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What that tells us, that shows us then that human beings are different than the rest of creation. Human beings are the kind of creature that God can speak to. They, they can hear and understand his words and respond to them. It, it is that verbal relationship that is central to the biblical storyline. Right from the very beginning, he establishes the truth and the reality that we live in today, that God can speak and does speak to us. Then you move on to section two. This is human life and death, Genesis 2, 4 through 4, 26. And in the second major section, we're told much more about the nature of human life. So he tells us about the creation. Now he tells us about what life was like for human beings. And we see that human beings possess an aesthetic sense. That is, they live in a world, for, as, we, as it says in the scripture, that had, whose trees have been created uh, that, that are good to look upon. They were beautiful. You get this sense that they're looking at it and they see the beauty of creation. Where we learn that they inhabit an environment that they can both cultivate and explore. And they can enjoy that special relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and wife, a relationship that, of beings created with equal status, but as complementary uh, rather than identical. And with these deft strokes, the author builds up a picture of the various features that make human life remarkable. However, there is one more feature yet to be mentioned, and, and it is by far the most important. And once again, it has to do with the Word of God. And it is that... God spoke to the humans about the nature of life in the garden. God gave them permission to eat of every tree of the garden except for one. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people confuse that and they, and they say, you know, a lot of uh, people who are anti-religious and anti-God and atheists, they say, God is against knowledge. He didn't want them eating from the tree of knowledge. No, it was not the tree of knowledge. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a very specific type of knowledge that he's talking about here. And this tree was in the middle of the garden, along with other special, uh, another special tree, the tree of life, with, uh, uh, to which they had free access. And of the tree of the, uh, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, God said this in Genesis 2.17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now there's a lot of discussion among scholars about the status and the meaning of this portion of the story, but I'm not here to discuss all of the creation story tonight. That's not my purpose tonight. I want us to concentrate on what the story is actually saying. For here, we have a very clear, simple, yet profound statement of the essence of morality and what it means to be a moral being. And that's important for us looking at the life of Joseph because morality is at the heart of the Joseph narrative. First, the, the origin of morality, like the origin of the universe and of humanity, is to be found in God. I, I think of the famous statement by the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky uh, in the book, The Brothers Karazimov. And you may or may not have read any of his books because they're, they're kind of thick reading but he makes a statement, and this you may have heard something similar to this, but the famous statement out of that book is, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. Now, he was not, uh, of course, arguing that atheists are incapable of moral behavior. That would be a lie. We know that's not true. Uh, from the biblical, biblical perspective, all human beings are made in the image of God, so therefore all human beings are moral beings, whether they believe in God or not. Therefore, atheists, or really anybody else, can at times put others to shame by the, by the quality of their moral behavior. So they can be very moralistic in their behavior, not moralistic, but they can be very moral in their behavior. What, what Dostoevsky, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with his name tonight, Dostoevsky was suggesting uh, was that there, that there is no rational basis for morality if God does not exist. There's no way to explain it. If there's not a God who defines right and wrong, then it's simply a human opinion and you cannot defend right and wrong. You can't say that my right is, is wrong or your right is right if it's just based on human opinion. That anything goes. That's kind of the world we live in. Um, and, and, and so, uh, and I'm not going to get into the debate of all, about all that tonight, but, but what is important here is that what we see in Genesis is that morality involves the capacity to decide whether to obey a command from God or not. But that's really what it boils down to. Genesis here traces the moral order to God who placed the first humans in the garden and he gave them permission to eat from all of the trees in the garden with one exception, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's obvious that, that the command not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil would have been meaningless if humans were not free to eat it. Thus, although human beings are clearly restricted in innumerable ways, for example, we are not free to run at 100 miles per hour. So we are restricted in many, many ways. Some of us are not free to run at two miles per hour, but that's a different story altogether. But it is, it is surely evident that they were not created to be predetermined robots. They had real choice. And this is where morality comes in. Morality only exists as if I have the choice to do right or to do wrong, to obey God or to disobey God. They could choose to obey or choose to disobey God's word. They could eat or they could refrain from eating the forbidden fruit. And this leads us naturally into a discussion of free, the free will of humanity, but that's not our purpose tonight. We could talk all these things, but we would be here for weeks trying to deal with every subject. But for now, for what we're talking about, the important thing is that the central feature of morality, as described in the book of Genesis, is that it focuses on obedience to the word of God. Will you obey God? Will you trust his word? Or will you not? That's the essence of it. And, 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 
And, and when I say that, the Word of God, we need to understand that in, in this story, the humans only had God's Word to tell them, His spoken Word. They didn't have the Bible to tell them that the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was lethal. So, so the key question for them, and really is for us as well, the key question for them was simply this. Were they prepared to trust God's word? Were they prepared to believe him when he said, this is what will happen? Now, that was really the thrust of, of the serpent's temptation. He, he attacked them at the very point of trusting God's word. He said, did, did God really say? Is that really what God said? And, and so what the serpent did is he came with deception and he represented God as both repressive and tyrannical. He said in Genesis 3 to, to Eve, you'll remember this. He said, you will not surely die. Right there, he's calling God a liar. He's saying he's not telling you the truth. You, you can't trust what God is saying. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that, that is a devilishly clever half-truth in that, yes, you will know good and evil. That's the whole point is you'll have knowledge because before this point, Adam and Eve had no experiential knowledge of what it meant to disobey God. Now they know. So that was the half-truth. But, but it wasn't that God was somehow jealous and was afraid they were going to be, become like him. It was, it, was a, a, it was a lie. It was a deception. And, and, and the appeal was to the apparently irresistible beauty of the fruit and the intellectual desirability of the, of the one forbidden fruit in the garden. And the first humans partook of the forbidden fruit because they believed the deception. They listened to another voice rather than trusting God's voice, trusting God's word. And indeed, the, the topic of deception runs through the whole biblical storyline, and in particular for our study, it will form an important part of the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, whose very name, Jacob, means deceiver. So to, now, then, in response to the serpent that, that, that deceived the humans with that lie, God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It, it, it is a judgment, no question about that, on the serpent. But it also forms a basis for an astonishing expectation for the future. By promising that the offspring of the human, human is to triumph, God is declaring that humanity is not finished, not by a long shot. He said, yes, they have sinned, they have partaken of this, they have disobeyed my command, but it's not over yet. In that very first, in that very sentence, God is, is, is declaring that. And by promising that the offspring of the woman is to triumph, God is declaring uh, that, that, well, listen, the human story will be complex. And as we read it through the Bible, and as we see it now today, today even, it will be complex and full of frustration and difficulty. Nevertheless, God says a, a human will ultimately defeat the enemy. And that person was Jesus. It's, it's not just simply a prediction that God will triumph because that issue was never in question. That was never in doubt. Uh, even the serpent knew he could not defeat. The devil could know, knows he cannot defeat God. But it's a prediction that humanity, because of what God is going to do, will also triumph. In the end, it will be the seed of the woman, a human being, that will conquer the enemy. And so that verse begins the story of the seed that, according to the New Testament, finds its ultimate focus in the one whom Paul calls the seed or calls it the offspring in Galatians 3.16, and that is Jesus Christ. So Genesis contains the account of the initial trajectory of that seed. And with the birth of Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, that trajectory begins. Think about this. God has said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. That's not just for the serpent. That's a message to the enemy that the seed of the woman is going to destroy you. Eve has children. 
and the fight against it begins. Far from that first family being harmonious and idyllic, the, the dire effects of the entry of sin into the world are revealed with devastating swiftness, and Cain murders his brother Abel. Immediately we have the attack on the seed of the woman, on this whole plan of God. And you see it, the, the, the life of the first human family is marred by fratricide. And if you know what that is, that's just killing of one's brothers or, brother or sister. And, and it happens in the very first generation, a grim reminder of the difficulties that will lie in the path of eventually getting this seed into the world. And Eve, as a result, is left with one son, and he's a murderer. But then she gives birth to another son, Seth. And with him, what we will call the seed project regains its momentum. Genesis 4, 26, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Then we move to section three, which is a section on judgment. The, the third major section of Genesis begins with the marker phrase in this form. This is the book of the generations of Adam, chapter 5, verse 1. And then it rapidly traces the offspring of Adam down to Noah. It chronicles increasing violence on the earth with some notable exceptions like uh, such as Enoch and men like Noah. And then the wickedness of humanity nevertheless reaches such a fever pitch that God decides to blot out human beings. And at first sight, when you hear that, it would seem that the, the seed project is going to come to a complete end. But there's a caveat in God's assessment in Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The, the rest of the section on judgment is dominated by judgment of the, the judgment of the flood through which Noah and his family are saved by the ark. And there's all kinds of imagery there as far as our salvation goes. But let me just say this. The topic of judgment is understand, understandably not very appealing. Nobody gets excited when somebody says, tonight we're going to be preaching about judgment. Nobody's like, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. But, but I think we miss a little bit of the point there because when we hear that there's going to be a judgment, a final judgment, we've got to realize the, the fact that there is, in fact, going to be a final judgment tells us that our sense of right and wrong or our moral conscience, conscience is not an illusion. That there truly is right and wrong. Therefore, we can be confident in that. Let's move on. The final three sections are devoted to the family history of the patriarchs. And after the familiar section marker, these are the generations, generations of in chapter 10, verse 1. Then the fourth major section of the book initially moves swiftly down the generations and it outlines the beginnings of the great civilization of, of the ancient Near East and their cities such as Babel and Nineveh that were to become famous as centers of great empires. And, and the, the active intervention of God at Babel to confuse the languages of the people is followed once again by a narrowing of the focus of the seed project now to the descendants of Shem, one of Noah's sons. And, and subsequently from there, it narrows it down further to, to Terah and his son, Abram. And Abram, or, or Abraham as we'll call him, because that's what he was later called by God. He, he was a towering figure that stands astride not only the book of Genesis, but he stands astride the whole biblical storyline. He's from Genesis, all the way, you read about him all the way in Romans with Paul in the New Testament. And, and, and we see his story then. It's such a huge part of it. Well, well, Abraham was Joseph's great-grandfather. And it is surely to be taken for granted that Joseph's early upbringing was filled with stories of the exploits of Abraham. This is how they passed down history. This is how they passed down their lineage. This is how they taught their children about who, who they are and where they came from was by telling these stories. So, so there's no question Joseph heard these stories and in order to understand Joseph's story, it's therefore necessary for us to sketch in the stories that filled his childhood, memories of which may well have played a formative role in his life. And so at this point, what we're going to do is we're going to trace the storyline briefly and then only add in detail later as it becomes relevant. So let's look at section four, Abraham and his sons, Genesis 10, 1 through 25, 11. 
the account of Abraham's life on earth, uh, it actually, the account starts with when God makes a promise to him that has huge implications for all of subsequent history of the world. It's in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. You, you, you've heard this. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then you know what? You read that and the remainder of the book, indeed the remainder of the Bible, tells us how that promise was and yet is still being fulfilled. That that the promise of becoming a great nation. That's a huge promise. But you know what? That promise implied that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, would have children, doesn't it? And yet it became very soon uh, became clear that in their case, something had gone wrong with the physical processes involved in the transmission of life. And they, like many other couples in history and in the world today, seemed incapable of producing children. It is this very circumstance that forms the initial focus of one of the major themes of the whole of the whole book of Genesis. And one of the major themes is faith in God. Faith in God. The Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision and spoke to him in Genesis 15:1. God says to Abraham, "Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great." And Abraham's response actually he showed his pain at being childless. He said, "But but but uh, Abraham said, "O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of of Damascus." So Abraham pointed out that because he had no natural heir, his servant Eleazar would become his legal heir and the family was going to die out because he had no children. Not so, says the Lord. Verse four, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. Very explicit there. And the Lord then bade Abram to to come out of his tent and walk outside and look up at the sky. And he he told him to count the stars if you can. You ever tried counting the stars? You know, you get like to 164 and then somebody says something and you're like, oh, now you got to start all over again. You know, they're just too innumerable. But God says to Abram in verse 5, so shall your offspring be. Impossible to number. And Abram's reaction was brief, but it was profound. Verse 6, and he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he counted it, God counted it to him as righteousness. And with with that statement, now we have reached the central theme of Genesis. And that is trusting God and his word. We see it even back with Adam and Eve. Will they trust God when he says, this will happen if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? See, there's a very powerful logic that's in play here. Because going back on the narrative all the way back to the, to the Garden of Eden, the fatal wrong turn away from God back then consisted in putting trust in a voice other than God's. You see that? Because God said, don't do this. And they, and they listened to the voice of the serpent who said, ah, oh, don't listen to what he says. Trust me. And now the way back to God must therefore be learning to listen to his voice and to trust what he says. And Abraham is held at it out as to us in the biblical record as an outstanding example of what it means to trust what God has promised. However, the truth is, as you all know the story, the, the way it worked out in practice was far from smooth. Abraham trusted God, but nothing happened, at least not immediately. Nothing happened for a very long time. And then desperate, and we're going to skip over a lot of Abraham's life because that's we just don't have the time, but desperate for a child, Sarah presented Abraham with, with Hagar, and, and, and thus it was thus that Ishmael was born. And, and all went moderately well until uh, to Abraham and Sarah's surprise, since they were old, Sarah herself gave birth to a son and named him Isaac. 
unsurprisingly, a tension arose between Sarah and Hagar that was only resolved when Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. And there were two more incidents with Abraham and Isaac that would have been stored in his grandson's, uh, Joseph's memory that, that are relevant. The first was when God told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And that was a morally puzzling and emotionally devastating request since, think about it, all of Abraham's hopes for a significant posterity rested in Isaac. That was the only son he had. And yet God had promised there would be posterity. So as the writer of Hebrew tells us later on, writer of Hebrews tells us, Abraham reasoned that God would fulfill his promise even if he had to raise Isaac from the dead. However, just as Abraham was about to kill his son, God intervened. And then the second story in the romant is the romantic account of the way in which Abraham found a bride for Isaac. He sent his trusted servant back to the region of Haran, from which he had originally come to seek a bride among Abraham's relatives. The servant prayed for guidance, and at the watering hole, you remember, he encountered this beautiful young woman who fetched water for his camels and told him that she belonged to the family of Abraham. And an intense discussion followed, and the servant painted such a picture of Isaac, son of Abraham, that Rebecca was persuaded to leave her family and travel back to uh, back with Abraham's servant to marry a man she had never even seen. It's in Genesis 24. Not long after that, Abraham died. And, and that's in chapter 25, verse 8. And with his dead, sec, death, section 4, the book ends. We now move into the account of the second generation, Isaac, and his sons, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, 12 through 35, 29. Now, Here's where it gets very important and much more significant for us to think about. Since Jacob is, is to become the father of Joseph, in order to understand Joseph, it is important that we know Jacob with a more detailed investigation. So we're going to take a little time, a little time with Jacob here. But think about this. Sometimes we forget you know, how closely related in time some of these people were and, and we need to remember some of the things that took place. For example, we're going to get into it in just a moment, but Joseph was born, as we're going to hear you get in the story, he was born when Jacob was still serving his uncle Laban. And so he was there when a lot of these things happened. He was there, and we'll see the significance of this later on, when, when Jacob was reunited with his brother Esau, who had sworn to kill him. So... Joseph was there. So these are very formative events. It's very important. Now, when it comes to Jacob, as in the account of Abraham, Jacob's birth, birth story focuses on a woman who cannot bear children. And then Isaac took his wife, Rebekah's distress to God in prayer. And we all know she became pregnant with twins, one of which was Esau, uh, who was born just before his brother Jacob, who, whose tiny little hand clasped Esau's heel, a circumstance that actually led to his name, because the name Jacob in Hebrew is taken from a word meaning heel or rear, and that word is related to a verb meaning to follow at the heel, to assail, to circumvent, to supplant, and it's also related to an adjective meaning deceitful. And the name, as we will see very shortly, was very appropriate for Jacob. The boys themselves, the two twins, turned out to be as different as night and day. Esau was a man of the outdoors, a hunter, whereas Jacob preferred the quieter life of a shepherd. And the parents, as we'll see plays out in Jacob's life a little bit later, had different favorites. Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah, Jacob. The, the first major milestone recorded about their adult lives occurs, occurs when Esau comes in comes in one day exhausted from hunting and he sees that Jacob has brewed up some very appetizing stew and he's really hungry and he, you know, he's a drama queen because he's like, I'm going to die if I don't eat right now, you know, and he wasn't going to, but he asked for some food and, and Jacob showing the, the wily streak that was, that was to characterize him. He says to Esau that he could have some food, uh, provided he just give up his birthright as the firstborn son of the family. 
And Esau agrees, and he agrees so readily that it is obvious that an abstract concept such as a birthright, which relates to distant future, has no interest for him. He doesn't care about that. He just wants a full stomach now. That's the real thing for him. Well, this incident was going to haunt them both for years, compounded as it was by what happened when Isaac was old and blind and ready to die. Isaac, at that time in his life, he asked Esau to go hunting and prepare a game stew for him, and after which he would bless him as the firstborn before dying. Well, Rebekah, on hearing this, told Jacob, her son, to go get a goat and that she would prepare it in the style of game. Then she, next she dressed up Jacob in the skin of, of, the goat to, of the goat to give his arms the kind of roughness that Esau had. And, and then she sent Jacob in with the food and told him to pretend to be Esau and steal the blessing due to his brother. So this whole thing of deceit is not just Jacob. It's pretty much, I mean, it's even in his mom here. You can see this. Now, Isaac could not see Jacob. His eyesight was so dim. And he, but, but he was initially hesitant because he, he thought the voice sounded more like Jacob. But in the end, he decided to be guided by smell and touch. He said, well, it smells like Jacob. Let me feel your arm. Well, you feel like, I mean, Esau, you feel like Esau. You smell like him. So Isaac was deceived and he gave Esau's blessing to Jacob, Joseph's father. Well, J Jacob made a speedy exit just before his brother returned with his game stew. And, and not surprisingly, I don't think anybody is shocked. Esau was very angry. He was bitterly disappointed and he was absolutely disgusted to hear what happened. Jacob's tiny hand had now grown large and had grasped the blessing due to his brother by deceiving his father. He was behaving true to his name, the deceiver or the supplanter. Now, I will say this. Esau had already sold his birthright. And so uh, I, I'm not going to excuse Joseph, but I am going to say this. Esau had already proven he didn't value it. Well, Esau now is furious. And Rebekah, seeing Esau's fury and hatred for his brother, suddenly persuades Isaac to let Jacob go to his uncle Laban in the hope of finding a wife there from their kin, just as just as Isaac had done years before. That's how Isaac found Rebekah. So it was a very, you know, romantic proposal kind of thing. And so Isaac gives permission and Jacob heads out. It's a long, long journey, about 555, excuse me, 550 miles in total that, that took him up uh, via Damascus and Carchemish to Haran and Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia. And not long after he set out, Jacob dreamed that famous dream of his of a ladder extending all the way up to heaven from the stone that served as a pillow. And in his vision, Jacob observed some angels ascending on the ladder all the way to the top and other angels descending again. And when he saw this, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob regarded that encounter with God as so significant that he gave a name to that place where it occurred. He named it Bethel or Bethel meaning the house of God. And God speaks to Jacob then, impressing upon him his nearness and his willingness to be with him. He, he promises to guide Jacob in his future. He promised him he would be with him. While Jacob continued his lengthy journey, and he eventually found himself at a well where he met his uncle Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. Well, the encounter was very much like that of the of great-grandfather Abraham's servant who found Rebekah as a wife for, for Isaac. And Rebekah eventually became Jacob's mother. So Jacob, who, who he, he, he must have seen it as kind of a providential event, saying, wow, this is just like the stories I've heard. He fell in love with Rachel, and he made a deal with Laban that he would work for Laban for seven years to gain the right to marry Rachel, to get, take her as his wife. However... After seven years, the wedding is done. He wakes up uh, on the wedding morning after his, he's married his future bride. And to his surprise and horror, he found not Rachel, but her older sister Leah in the tent. And Jacob was furious. He accused Laban of cheating him. 
But Laban just countered by saying it was not the custom of their tribe to give the younger daughter in marriage before the other. And so here we see Jacob's deceiving, deceiving character had finally caught up to him. Years earlier, Jacob, the younger son, had pretended to be his older brother Esau to deceive his father Isaac. The younger had gone before the older. And now here's Jacob. He's finally getting to know by painful experience what it was like to be deceived. In one sense, it was a real test of uh, taste of his own medicine that he had meted out to his father. Now, Genesis is silent as to the details of Jacob's reaction, but it's not hard to imagine that the lesson was not lost on him. That, the, you know, the, this was the government of God at work. God treats Jacob as fully responsible for his behavior as to his father and brother, but now God sees to it that circumstances combine to force Jacob to experience the very same sort of behavior. Well, cunning Laban saw that Jacob's heart was set on Rachel, and so he leveraged that fact to make a further business deal that exploited the situation and exploited Jacob. The deal was that Jacob would wed Rachel as well right after the week of wedding festivities for his marriage to Leah had run his course. However, for the privilege of marrying Rachel, he would have to work seven more years without pay, effectively as a servant to his father-in-law's house. Now, I want to say this. I think this is, seems like common sense, but bigamy is never an ideal way to, to, to start a married life. You know, because it inevitably leads to favoritism, an intense rivalry. Jacob had been his mother's favorite, and now he was starting married life with a strong prejudice in his heart against one of his wives. It, it, it was a very unhappy situation for Leah. I mean, just try to imagine this. I want to tell you a little bit about Leah because we don't think about her a lot of times. But, but here, here she was through no fault of her own, perhaps genetically endowed with facial features that were not attractive to men. Married as a result of a process in which she was not involved to a man who clearly did not love her, but had to put up with her because of the certain customs of their local tribe, a victim of circumstances beyond her control. She was trapped in a loveless marriage. However, God saw Leah. He saw that she was hated and he did something about it. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And this marks the beginning of the saga of the family into which Joseph will be born. Joseph knows these events. He's been told these events. But this is the beginning of it. Along the way, Leah actually appears to have come not only to believe in the God of Jacob, because, you know, they were apparently a pagan family because uh, like even when they left Laban, Rachel stole one of the idols from Laban's house. So they were not worshipers of God, not like Abraham was. But apparently Le Leah uh, appears to have come not only to believe in the God of Jacob, but personally to trust him with the heartbreaks in her daily life. Uh, you know, one can only imagine during the seven years while Jacob was in the home uh, working to earn the right to marry Rachel, that, you know, you can imagine that during that time, he would just regale the family with the stories of his father and grandfather and great grandfather. There would have been talk about God and the lessons of faith that Abraham and Sarah had had to learn about the ways of God and his guidance and protection in their lives. And, and all of this may well have made a deep impression on, Le on Leah so that somewhere uh, during that time, she came to trust in the God of Abraham even though it is likely that the attitude of the one who brought her the message, Jacob, may well have been thoughtless and even cruel at times toward her. It was clear to, to Leah's tender eyes that Jacob had eyes only for Rachel. And that must have been very hard for her to take. Yet Leah somehow had been able to distinguish between the messenger and the message. And Leah heard the story uh, and, and grasped enough the, of the message to become a child of Abraham by trusting the God of, 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 of Abraham. Uh, her, her faith in God had grown in spite of Jacob's behavior, and, and the worse the family tensions became, the more she took them to God, at least initially. Hence, the name of her first child expresses her belief that the Lord had seen her loveless predicament, because it is she 
who chooses the child's name. Now, I'm sure Jacob approved it, but it says she named him. And Leah's first, name, first son was called Reuben, a name that means see a son. And that name was chosen to express her deep feelings, as she herself explained, Genesis 29, 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So she's seeing God's hand in this. Then another son, Simeon, which means heard, soon followed. And once more, the name reflected the ongoing pain in Leah's heart. Verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, reflecting the pain that she's going through. Then a third son came who was called Levi, which means joined. And she said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. It's not hard to see that her children's names were deliberately chosen, not only to record a, 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 her own personal, emotional, and spiritual journey, but to be a constant reminder to Jacob that his attitude to his wife and toward the mother of his children, and to God for that matter, was far from what it should be. I mean, can you imagine Jacob having to explain to someone how his children got their names? You know, that'd just be a little awkward. However, in, in spite of producing three sons for Jacob, it appears that he, he did not grow any closer to Leah as a person. He treated her as a means, a means of child production, and not as an end, a person to be valued in her own right. But listen to this. This is where we see the work of God in Leah's life. When Leah's fourth son was born, she called him Judah. And this is what she said. This is why she called him that. This time, I will praise the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? This journey she's gone. Something has changed in Leah's heart. Gone was any expectation of improved relationship between her and Jacob. She seems to have accepted that it just wouldn't happen, but she shows no obvious trace of bitterness. Indeed, all she wished to do was praise the Lord and celebrate that fact in the name of her fourth son. So she appears, therefore, to have found deep strength of character and resolved to rise above her circumstances and her unfairness. Now, meanwhile, while this is all going on, Rachel is smoldering with jealousy. In contrast to Leah, to Leah she enjoyed all of Jacob's love and attention, yet she did not have what Leah had, children. Her good looks and her attentive husband did not compensate for a lack of family. It was considered a, a horrible disgrace not to be able to bear sons in their, in their culture. And in her desperation for children of her own, she offered Jacob her maid as a surrogate. And in that way, she gained two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Not to be outdone, Leah resorted to the same tactic, offering her maid to Jacob. And as a result, Gad and Asher were born. And this sibling rivalry escalated when Reuben brought to Leah, his mother, some mandrake roots, which were regarded during their, that time as aphrodisiacs. And so Rachel wanted those, so she bargained with Leah. Leah could sleep with Jacob that night, provided Rachel got the mandrakes. So she gave her the mandrakes, and Leah uh, confronted Jacob with the deal, and he did what she requested, and Issachar was born. Then Leah had an, another son named Zebulun followed by Dinah, the only daughter actually recorded in Scripture. Now, they have, may have had many other daughters. We don't know because it was, un, it was not the practice to record the names of the daughters. But I believe but Donna is, Dinah is recorded because of an incident that happened a little bit later on. And finally, after all of this, we are explicitly told that God intervened. And he opened Rachel's womb. And she bore her own firstborn son, Joseph. His name, meaning may he add, shows us her desire to have more sons. And she eventually would have one more son named Benjamin. She actually named him Benoni, which is son of my sorrow, but Jacob changed it to Benjamin. Uh, and Benjamin would also play a prominent role in Joseph's life. So now... All these children are born. And after Jacob's 
favorite wife had given birth, actually by this time, this is before Benjamin was born, but after Jacob's uh, wife had given birth to a son, Jacob wanted now to get away from under Laban's feet and set up an independent family. And after some very crafty and slippery dealings that may well have lasted several years, probably did last several years, Jacob eventually gathered his family and flocks, and without informing Laban, he set out to return to his father Isaac in Canaan. And when Laban found out he was gone, he is so furious, he just sets out in, in hot pursuit. But God intervened and warned Laban to be careful how he treated uh, Jacob. And, you know, now, now, as I said earlier, Joseph was born while they were still living, living in Laban's house, in his household, in that property. So he, he may well have been old enough, uh, though he was still a child, to later recall the tense meeting between his father, Jacob, and Laban. He may have witnessed that when Laban finally caught up, and he's furious, and he's angry. Well, eventually we know, I'm not going to get into the details, but Jacob and Laban came to an agreement. They had a final meal together and went their separate ways, and Jacob was finally free of Laban. However, Jacob realized there was still someone else that he has to face, Esau. If he's going home, he's going to have to face Esau, the brother he had cheated years before. Now, so far as we know, there had been no contact between the brothers for a long, long time. So anticipating an uncomfortable and probably dangerous confrontation, Jacob sent out messengers who confirmed his worst fears because they came back with the, with the message that Esau was coming to meet him. And he was coming with an army of 400 men. Now Jacob was terrified and he divided his people and flocks into two groups in the hope that if Esau attacked, that maybe one of the groups at least would be able to get away. And then it says Jacob prayed, an activity that seemed not to have been a major priority in his life. But in his prayer, he reminded God that God himself had told him to go back to his kindred. And he expressed himself as unworthy of all of the love and faithfulness he had shown, had been shown. And, 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 and he pleaded with the Lord to deliver him from the hand of his brother Jacob. Finally, at night, Jacob took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, all of his other servants, all of his possessions, all of his flocks, and he helped them ford the river Jabbok. And then Jacob went, lingered back behind, and, and he was alone in the darkness. And he imagined to himself that probably the next person he was going to encounter was going to be Esau. He, he had presumably decided that he's going to have to face Esau alone. Well, he's there in the darkness and all of a sudden, without warning, in the middle of the night, he found himself under surprise attack. And before he could realize what was happening, he became involved in a deadly wrestling match with a man. He, he may have thought, we, this is just, we don't know, but he may have thought at first that it was his brother Esau. Oh, he found me here in the darkness. He's going to get me. But then why is he wrestling? Why wouldn't Jacob use a, why wouldn't Esau use a knife or a stone or something, a sword? But it was someone altogether different and yet so evenly matched with Jacob that Jacob may well have even begun to think he could win. I've wrestled all night long. And then his opponent suddenly put out his hand and touched Jacob's hip joint, which at once dislocated. And frankly, it brought the fight to an end because you can't wrestle with a hip that's out of joint. Yet Jacob who must have been convinced by now that there was a divine dimension in what was happening, he did the only thing he could think of. Using his arms, he, he clung on to this man for dear life, clinging like he did in Rebekah's womb to Esau's heel. And the victor said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And Jacob's opponent asked him a fateful question. What is your name? Now, we don't think about what a, what, a, what a significant question that really is, but I can't help but think back to the time when Jacob's father, almost blind father, Isaac, had asked him the same question, and Jacob had lied. I am Esau, he had said. He had lied to gain the father's blessing. But now in this close encounter with God, 
Lying was no longer possible. He would not get the blessing from God that way. He had to admit who he really was. The scheming, manipulating, supplanting, heel-grabbing Jacob. He had spent his life manipulating others. He now had to learn that he could not do the same with God. He had to face it if he was going to get God's blessing. And if he was going to get God's blessing, the old Jacob had to go. And so it was because the next thing the victorious wrestler said was, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The change of Jacob's name to Israel left a permanent mark, not only on his character, but also on his body, for he, he limped for the rest of his life. Listen, I know, can I just say this? I know we're getting close on time, but I've just got a little bit more. Will you, will you give me five more minutes? Will you, raise your hand if you'll give me five more minutes. Okay, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40. Okay, all right, we're ready to go now. Okay. So Joseph or Jacob limped for the rest of his life. Jacob limped away from that place, which he named Peniel, which means uh, the face of God, because he says, I've seen the face of God. He limped away from Peniel, and he limped forever after. That limp reminded him that he was not, after all, a self-sufficient man living in the fast lane. The limp showed him, uh, excuse me, slowed him down and humbled him as he recognized his human limitations and his frailty. And in that vulnerable condition, coming out of that moment, being up all night, I'm sure he was exhausted. And now he's got this hip that's in, that's in pain constantly. And he's limping out there. And in that vulnerable condition, he had to face his estranged brother Esau. And the very next thing he saw as dawn broke after his encounter with God, was Esau in the distance, bearing down upon him with a substantial private army of 400 men. Jacob then arranged his family in groups, his two female servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and finally Rachel and Joseph last. And one wonders what Joseph was thinking as he watched his dad limp, thinking, where did that limp come from? Joseph saw this limp. He heard the story later about what happened, how he got this limp, but he doesn't know any of this yet. He, and he sees his dad. What, you want, can't help but wonder what he's thinking as he watches his dad limp past him, past all of, the, uh, all of this family, all of his crew, and, 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 they're, and he's pausing, uh, uh, slowly advancing toward, toward Esau and pausing seven different times to bow down to the ground, obviously fearing the worst. Wonders even more how it all appeared to Esau when he saw his brother who had cheated him limping toward him and demonstrating his vulnerability and bowing in submission to show repentance and, and contrition. Esau, we know, he was a, an emotional and impulsive man, but he was immediately overwhelmed by something he never expected. Genesis 33, 4 says, But Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. In their clinging together, while they were clinging together, in that moment was mingled repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Jacob had no time to plead with Esau with whatever words he had planned to say. I'm sure he, he had a plan. I'm sure he had speech ready to go, just like the prodigal son did when he came back to his father. He probably had all the things he was going to say, but he didn't get a chance. He was overwhelmed by Esau's actions. Here's the part I want you to think about. And then next week we'll get into, we'll begin to talk about Joseph himself more. Joseph was watching all of this. And as young Joseph watched this remarkable sight, he had no idea that he and his brothers would eventually have to face the very same issues of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. This was a shaping moment. 
And when the time came many, many years later where Joseph's brothers who had betrayed him stood before him and he had the power in his grasp to do whatever he wanted. He could wipe them out if he wanted. He remembered a moment when two brothers were reconciled, when it seemed like it was impossible, when one brother had such hatred that he wanted to kill the other brother and yet he saw those two brothers reconciled and he saw repentance and forgiveness flow and he stood in that moment and said, that's what I want from my family. See, you can't understand Joseph without understanding where he came from. Joseph would have learned from this moment, watching his father and his uncle Esau, that reconciliation is possible even in the most unpromising, most difficult, most dire situations. And all of this shaped who Joseph became. We're going to get into that in the coming weeks. But would you bow your head together with me? Father, we thank you for the story of Joseph and all that goes into making him who he was and the lessons we learned from all of it. But God, I just pray that even now, Lord, that we would hear some of these great themes about faith in you and, and trusting your word. And God, that we would be challenged to say, Lord, this is who I want to be. I don't want to be somebody who is vindictive. I don't want to be somebody who's manipulative. I want to be not like Jacob. I want to be like Joseph. I want to be a person of forgiveness. I want to be a person who trusts. I want to be a person who waits on you and lets you fulfill your promise without trying to manipulate the situation. And God, I pray that in coming weeks, as we look at the life of Joseph, I pray that you would continue to challenge us and that we would be changed. And God, that we would be moved into your presence to become more and more like Jesus, as we see, even in Joseph, somewhat of a picture of who Jesus is. And God, we thank you for all that you're going to do. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.